Thank you for joining us for today's show. You can follow us on Facebook or visit our website at BeatitudesChurch.org. Beatitudes Radio, empowering people to enrich society. Today's scripture reading is Isaiah 9, 1 through 7. In the early times, God humiliated the land of Zebulah and the land of Nephetali. But now God brings honor to the ways of the sea, the region beyond the Jordan and Galilee of the nations. The people walking in darkness see a bright light. Light shines on those who live in a land of deep darkness. You have enlarged the nation. You give them great joy. They rejoice in your presence as harvesters rejoice, as warriors rejoice when they divide up the plunder. For their oppressive yoke and the club that strikes their shoulders, the cudgel the oppressors use on them, you have shattered, as in the days of Midian's defeat. Indeed, every boot that marches and shakes the earth and every garment dragged through the blood is used as fuel for the fire. For a child has been born to us, a son has been given to us, He shoulders responsibility and is called Wonderful Advisor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. His dominion will be vast and he will bring immeasurable prosperity. He will rule on David's throne and over David's kingdom, establishing it and strengthening it by promoting justice and fairness from this time forward and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of heaven's army will accomplish this. Ends the reading. Today's sermon is a dialogue sermon. Back in March, when we no longer could meet in person and we moved everything online, we took Ruminate, which used to be following our worship service on Sunday, and we also put it online. And through that, I got to meet an individual who lives in Philadelphia. The more I began to talk with him through Ruminate, I realized that we shared a lot in common. He is also an ordained minister. He took a great deal of time in pursuing his passion of theology and worked on his PhD degree in theology. Today, you're going to hear Reverend Scott Jones and I talk about hope. As we start this Advent worship series, and especially as we end 2020, and we're finding major transitionings occur as we move into 2021, we want you to be able to have a sense of renewed hope. But what does that look like? What does it feel like? So that's what we're going to introduce today this new series on Advent and hope. So please, enjoy this dialogue between Reverend Scott Jones and myself. May 21, 2011. Jesse McKinley, writing for the New York Times, says, despite careful calculations, the world does not end. Harold Camping, who at that time was 89 years old, was a Christian radio entrepreneur. He had family radio that went all over the place, Scott. I mean, they were advertising 
radio shows. They rented billboards because they truly believe that on May 11, 2000, I'm sorry, May 21, 2011, Jesus was going to return. They were selling their homes. They were selling, you know, quitting their jobs. They were, I, I read one place. Are you ready for this? They were having drinking parties. So they were get, all getting ready for this. Um, he never comes. Headline comes out the very next day. Uh, go back and you look at in the 1950s, there was another minister who stood up and preached and he said, oh, guess what? UFOs are coming and they're coming to take us home. And the same phenomena happened and it, everyone sells their stuff, gets all excited, drinking parties and never happens. Go back to October 22, 1844, William Miller and what ended up becoming the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Same thing happens to them, Scott. They get ready. They even, they even have, Scott, have you ever heard of Ascension robes? No, but did they have drinking parties or no? I don't know if they had, they were Methodists. A lot of them were Methodists, so I don't know if they did drinking parties. But they did have Ascension robes. They literally made robes that they would use when Jesus comes. They believed he would come and they would rise up in the air with him. What were they made of? Um, I don't know. My first thought is to think that maybe they were white, but I don't know. <laughs> I mean, aerodynamics, you want to switch you you want to be into the air. <laughs> you, want, you want it to be very aerodynamically efficient, I would think. Gravi I mean, gravity defying. Yeah. Yeah. But October 22 comes and goes. And what's amazing is all three of these, all three of these different groups, plus others, some of the followers ended up walking away, but many of them doubled down and just came to a new understanding of what their teacher had been teaching them. And that reminds me, and I'm sure it reminds you, Scott, of a lot of what we find in the Old Testament, in what we call prophecies. And these are the prophecies that we often are familiar with this time of year, Advent, because the one we had read earlier, Isaiah chapter 9, is one that's read probably almost the majority of churches sometime during Advent about the coming of this child. So my question for you is, how do you read some of these prophecies that we find in the Old Testament? And when you look at the historical context, as much as we possibly can glean from it, we understand that these are unfulfilled prophecies. They never took place. How, if you were one of those writers back then, how would you have felt? You make this proclamation either orally or you're writing it down. How would, how would you feel? I don't, I don't know. I mean, that's a really good question. I mean, I think it'd be frustrating and hard, especially if you felt like you were inspired and people probably rallied around you in smaller numbers than we'd imagine today because they don't have the internet and it's a localized community but there's probably as big a number that you can imagine yeah and i think i'd hope that i was right down the road like long term and i think this is what it's interesting like whether you have um the jews in post-second temple judaism that becomes the rabbinic uh, tradition. I'm going to pause to mute this because it's a phone ring. 
So while Scott is paused, while the phone, where he's, Scott is recording this, um, is in one of our church members' homes. He took the uh, trip from Philadelphia and came to spend the time with us in Phoenix. And so he, that's why he paused real quick. There we Are go. You, so it's, is, is your phone done ringing, Scott? It, it's not my phone. It's Julie's phone. Who oh, is, okay who is one of the most popular people in Phoenix. <laughs> so I think I would want what happened. Um, so I think you have like two communities, the rabbinic community, um, which comes up alongside Christianity. You know, centuries later, there's two communities that kind of take up these texts and do inspiring imaginative things with them. And I think that's what I'd want. Like, I think I'd want, like, I'd want to know that. Wait, 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 you wouldn't, you wouldn't want to just like, okay, I'm going to hide this. Um, I'm going to tear it up. I'm going to burn it. So no one will ever see it again because you're embarrassed. Uh, well, I mean, who knows? I don't know. How, like, I don't know how much, so all this stuff is so we have access centuries later to the stuff. Right. So we but don't I'm know. talking at that very moment. Put yourself back in that place at that time. I would have wanted to moment. edit it. I would have wanted to edit it. So you would have gone back and edited it. Yeah. And so that when someone saw it, they wouldn't realize you had messed up. Yeah. Okay. And Why? I would have wanted to edit it in Christopher. Why? Hawkins voice like here's the thing we all make mistakes in the prophecy process and you just you need Christopher Walken voice to do that so don't wouldn't you worry about your credibility probably I think I would yeah I mean because all of a sudden you go from this is going to happen this is going to happen this is going to happen and it's like oh um Fingers crossed. Just joking. But, you know, it's inter it's interesting. You know, James Madison, who we view as one of the guys that, that put together the United States. Ten years after the Constitutional Convention, I think 1797, he was telling Virginia to succeed, secede from the Union. <laughs> because? He just states rights. I mean, it was it was really I mean, the so state signs the then. he signs the Constitution and then yeah. says the only two founding fathers that really believed. At least from my reading, which is thin, but that really believed in union were like Ben Franklin, and George Washington. Most of the founders were like, look, New Hampshire, Massachusetts, New, you know, Virginia, South Carolina, like they were they were defending states rights at a level you know these are things like you i don't know historically situated you come up with these great ideas that their time has not yet come right and i think that's the key to hope where oftentimes are the ideas we have for a better world for kids or for society or for gender relations or race relations or for the integration of science and philosophy and religion or something, their time has just not yet come. And, and you have to kind of hold on to things and figure out how to tell your story to get to that point. Right. Well, 
let's say again, if we're imagining that Scott is Isaiah, who writes Isaiah 9, um, 1 through 7, one of the th reasons why Old Testament scholars, biblical scholars, believe that Isaiah was written by more than one person is perfectly found here in Isaiah chapter 9, because 1 through 7, you get this positive, I'm going to, God says, I'm going to redeem you, I'm going to restore you, everything's going to be positive, really good, and then verse 7, he comes, uh, I'm sorry, verse 8 comes along and it goes, um, you got to be judged too, and then he gives this element of judgment. So you mean, you're talking about the yin and the yang, I mean, they're just totally opposite. So talk to me a little bit about what effect this had upon the original writers. First of all, this positive doesn't happen. And the judgment that we find in Isaiah chapter 9, 8 and following is really harsh. I mean, it's like I'm wiping out everyone, which doesn't happen because there is a remnant that's left in Israel. Um, you know, the population is taken to Babylon, but the significant portion of them are still left in, in Israel, the commoners. How, how would, how do you think people saw that and read that back in that early time of the Old Testament from your perspective? What would, what do you see? And, and it wasn't that, how do you get hope of this idea that God's going to do these wonderful things for you? And then all of a sudden that's countered by this words of judgment. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I imagine we tell stories to make new sense of things, right? So, so let's say you 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 know somebody comes along and they were really swept up by this guy that wrote Isaiah chapter nine or eight or whatever. Like, and so first off, I'd want to push back against the idea that people can't think two thoughts at one time, right? Like, I mean, I think. You know, C.S. Lewis, it, let's say we have an apocalyptic thing and, and then, you know, in nine centuries later, people unearth the Lewis school and they say, well, there must be 14 C.S. Lewis's because no one could write children's literature, sci-fi, Christian apologetics, literary criticism, read Latin and Greek. I mean, who knows? I mean, I mean, who knows? I mean, these are all speculative constructs, right? Like, I don't know, but I can imagine somebody wrote a really good piece of verse or literature and people said, well, this isn't done. And they reinvested it with new meaning. They were like, look, it might not, it might not have come true in the way we thought it came true, ah. but there's a real truth here that what if we reinvented the truth here? What if we, what if we, what if we reinvested this artist's painting or their, or their lyrics or their, you know, kind of their, their prose attempt at bearing witness to reality. And what if we said there's something here and reinvested it with a new meaning? So if, for example, the original audience hears these words of hope and then followed by words of judgment, all of a sudden that creates this disconnect. But if they eventually, if they originally ended up beside uh, alone and then they were brought together then you almost get what you're describing here is these two pictures. One is this sense of message of hope and reconciliation. The other is this sense of like, but if we're going to get hope and rec reconciliation, we better get our act together. 
So is that what you're kind of talking about is bringing those two ideas and letting the tension exist between them? Yeah. And I mean, I think this is, you know, what we all live with, right? We're all, there's a dividing line between all of us there, you know, there are multiple stories, right? We all live in multiple stories. And I think the beauty of the Hebrew Bible is it, it, it testifies to the multiple stories we all live with it, right? Like we all are complicated. And one day you're the good guy in your story. The next day you're the bad guy in your story. One day you feel great about the decision you made. The next day you feel terrible about it. And I think the messiness of the biblical record is really helpful when you interpret your own story. Because if you're honest, all of our stories are ambiguous, right? Like, and we feel different, even if you're the best moral performer, maybe even especially if you're the best moral performer, you think, well, should I have done this differently yesterday or two days ago or something? So I think the, the kind of polyphonic witness, and, and that just means like multiple voices, multiple sounds, multiple testimonies, people saying this happened, no, this happened, no, this happened. Isn't that just what our own lives look like, right? Because that's how we live. We have to deal with a complicated story that we all live in that is our own lives. So you almost get this idea that in the Old Testament, their sense of hope was rather than being static, it was shifting. Yeah. So you get like, okay, this is what we're hoping for. Events happen, circumstances happen. Uh, okay, we're going to shift. It's almost like being at carnival and those, uh, those rifle, that shooting area where those targets keep going by. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yep. it's more, that's, you would think then that their hope was more fluid and shifting rather than just point on always that. Yeah, I think the reason we're still reading the Bible is because its authors had, a un, had an uncanny ability to reinvent their stories. And I think that's what everybody needs in Advent and all in their lives, an ability to sort of, hey, mm. something different happened. My hopes were pinned here. And now I'm going to move it. I can, I'm going to re-edit the story. And I think part of the, the overwhelming message of the Bible, which I think is a monergism of mercy. Like, I think at the heart of the Bible is a monergism of mercy, mercy for people that can reinvent their stories. So I think the biblical tradition doesn't judge people that reinvent their stories. It actually celebrates them. It, it, so, but there's a tension, though, with what you because I, I love what you're saying, but there's a tension for uh, a significant group of Christians who don't believe today that that target is shifting, that hope rather is in one thing. And a perfect example of this is found by a guy named David Allen Hubbard, who was the third president of Fuller Theological Seminary. He served there for, for quite a few years, and he wrote an article. And in that article, he says the following. He says, since the Old Testament is a book of hope, a set of writings tip toward the future. So he's almost saying these prophecies, these Old Testament um, predictions, these Old Testament sense of hope had their fullest for, uh, fulfillment yet to come. 
because it was tipping that way. And then he goes on and he says, eschatology, the idea of the, the end of time, is a dimension of belief that history moves in a particular direction, and that this direction is set by God, and that God acts within history to ensure this direction. So Hubbard would disagree with you and I. Hubbard would say, wait a minute, this is there's a there is a goal there is an aim in mind and his image of god is that god is going to do whatever it takes to make sure that we get that goal so these unfulfilled prophecies they're really not unfulfilled they were just either not fully understood misunderstood or were over the heads of its original writers so that only after jesus came those that lived and were his followers could reflect back and find the true meaning. So there's all sorts of ways that some Christians come up with to make sure that these texts are not going to give us a different story. They're all pointing in the same direction, and that is essential for them, that they have to have one hope, one aim, and all these other things are going to take place to make sure that that's how we end up and we're not going to deviate from it. How would you reply to them, given what you just said? Are you a Woody Allen fan or no? Um, nah. Eh. <laughs> so I remember listening to a Howard Stern interview with Alec Baldwin, and he was talking about Blue Sage, and Stern asks, what is it like when Woody Allen calls? And he's like, Howard... He doesn't just call me like we have people like he's like he, he doesn't call my cleaning. He picks up. Hello, is Alec there? <laughs> but I think that is the scariest view of God to me. Like it's not the Zeus Thunderbolt God. It's not the warrior God of Mars. It's 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 Woody Allen like that it, in these things where I've been ambiguous in my life. The Woody Allen God comes to me. Says, I mean, Scott, I think you, you could have played the part better. I mean, I, I just don't. And we can do it. We could do a new direction and we can do it differently. But there's hope. You know, we can work the script. And I, I feel like I was a bad actor with Woody Allen. And I, I think that's the ultimate like thing where if there is some superintending to the whole story, right? Like if there is something, some person behind the screen, it terrifies me that it would be Woody Allen, but also it I, I it comforts me that it would be Woody Allen. That I, I, I feel like God's like, hey, Tony, I mean, you did this nice little thing and he was nice, critical thing, but could we do it a little, I mean, he, it, could we get another part? And then all these guys and gals that work with him, I said, genius. And he just, when Woody comes to you, could, could, could we do it a little different? And I think that's the, um, the power is that like, if there is a God, which I think there is one that emerges from the Hebrew scriptures and is born witness to in the New Testament. I think God's current incarnation is something like woody allen <laughs> it's a, and hey you got your iphone and your android but i mean hey, could could we uh, look up from the screen 
get in a little existential, you know, listen to Minnie and what he's doing. And, you know, maybe you, you read one chapter of Jonah and we kind of you kind of get in into the story. I mean, I think that's. I mean, God as director is interesting to me. I, but also with the actors doing their own thing, you know. See, and that's where I guess for me is when I look at the Bible from just a literary perspective, I tend to go along with um, Jack Miles, who wrote the book God, a biography. Yeah. And what I like is basically if 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 there is this, if we go with Hubbard, Hubbard would say that this is the trajectory the world is on. When I look at the Bible and read it, it just said from a purely literary standpoint of view, uh, I mean, I'm sorry, from a point of view, then what I almost find is this Woody Allen kind of director, this is what I want, this is what I want, that's what we find early on. And then towards the end of the Old Testament, he kind of goes, ah, just whatever you put on the tape, we're going to go, you know, we're going to go with it. And God becomes almost more and more. And then you get the New Testament, and then you get this kind of like a bang with Jesus. And then all of a sudden, it just drops silent again. Now, if you're Roman Catholic, you believe that God is still speaking through the church. But Protestants, even in the United Church of Christ, we say God is still speaking. But I've never found any Protestants. Um, well, I shouldn't say any. There's very few Protestant denominations that say, ah, that person, they're now the voice. You almost get this silent God who is now just basically letting things float. So what I, I want what, what I want is a conversation between Woody Allen on one hand as the right. God of the First Testament and Joaquin Phoenix <laughs> as Jesus. And so I want like I want like Woody Allen going, hey, what do you think? Of the, I mean, I don't know that you're taking these things in the direction. Joaquin Phoenix, look, Dad. I'm taking it where I want to go. I mean, here's the thing. And he just goes in to walk the line or something. Yeah. And I think that's where, I mean, the one challenge I have with this idea of this one hope, and that hope is a, a literal second coming of Jesus, new creation, new heavens, new earth, all of this, this apocalyptic inbreaking. The challenge that I see with that is that, first of all, it's been you know, 2000 years since Jesus was around um, physically on the earth. And number two, studies are showing that that belief in a literal second coming of Jesus is declining. In 2013, the Pew Research did a, a study, that number was down uh, to 47%. So they believe he's coming, but it's just, there's a tentativeness. And that number is going, I think the last, like in the late, 20th century, it was like 19, it was like 70 some percent. Now it's down to 47%, if I remember correctly. So we're seeing this shift just by passing of time that this one hope is not holding up as well as many thought it would. So going back to what you were talking about is that in the Old Testament, maybe these passages that of unfulfilled prophecy are pointing us in the direction that hope and with that object of your hope is more dynamic. It's, it's moving, it's shifting. It's, um, do you find that discouraging or helpful? If that's the truth, if that's the case. 
So first off, I think the most discouraging thing for my faith is that we can't update. Jesus is not going to come to Jerusalem, right? And even New York is passe. He might come to Scottsdale or Vegas. I mean, like, come on, if we're going to believe in the second coming, let's get the real estate right, right? Like, I mean, he's not going to go to Jerusalem. It may be Beijing. I don't know where he's going to go. Shanghai, actually, is probably more realistic. But so that's the thing. I think he's going to come to a real, a real real estate city. So we've got to update our faith based on real estate. No, I mean, yeah, no, I think that's, but that's the thing that it's interesting, right? Like even let's say you're a conservative Christian or a liberal Christian, wherever you are on the map, the people in both Testaments were able to readjust hope on the fly. They knew that their story, the story, we all need stories, right? We don't need hope. We all need I mean, God, goodness gracious. I mean, people that are listening to this have children that are struggling or jobs that are drying up or just are frustrated with their own lives and thinking, you know, we're all, what did they say? All, all men lead, lead lives of quiet desperation. And so many people are living that. And so whatever you believe about God or disbelieve about God, I think the people that were writing our sacred texts were able to run on the fly and when somebody wrote something that they thought was silly or misguided, they were able to say, well, let's take this seriously and try to reinterpret it and make it yes. sensible in our lives. And so this is what, as somebody who's been in Beatitudes for less than a year, I've appreciated about the community is an ethos of being able to take it on the fly. And I think that's the thing that really enables you to have hope when you're able to take the story and and cling to the parts that you really need to and let go of the parts that you don't at the same time realizing it it it's there's movement all the time like riding a wave and surfing or something but that's yeah, the beauty of yeah. it like it, it's not to get it more stable it's riding the wave is the only thing that matters right yeah and i think what i find helpful in this area of hope and especially with advent in this this idea of a shifting hope rather than the fixed static goal in christianity is that adaptability i think about how you know a year ago during advent we were just going into our brand new worship space and we were all excited about 2020 and the opportunities of using this space and then, you know, come March, everything's shut down. And right now, what I hear is, I think a lot of us either are verbalizing or not, is our hope is that we will have this vaccine. And then the next thing that comes with that, and then the life will get back to normal. I think the challenge that I see is when we realize that hope is not static, that hope is shifting, then our hope is not to go back to normal. The hope is to create a better normal. And I think that's what to me is encouraging. And that's why I also find in the, in some of the teachings of Jesus is there's, he's almost as if he's always taking it up a notch, you know, like it's here, we're here, but we could be here. You know, we could always, and I think that's what I see as being beneficial to being honest with the Old Testament and then honest with the New Testament is that they didn't mind saying we got it wrong. Let's fix it. Let's correct it. 
and let's move forward. And I think if we did that as Christians, when it came to our ideas of God, when it came to our ideas about each other, um, that sense of hope would be stronger than just this one thing that we got all got to get to. So that, yeah. that to me is what I find encouraging from, from our conversation. I totally agree. And I think Jesus, it's already and not yet. Like yeah, the kingdom of God, right? He's saying the kingdom of God is here and we got reason to celebrate. And yet, like you're saying, it's also out there. Like, yes, we can't ever get ahead of it. We're always kind of, and that's a beautiful story. And there's no better story to be a part of. And man, I've been around a lot of churches and I think there's no better church that does it. Well, Beatitudes. It, yeah. And I, I am honored, um, to to be able to be a part of a tradition that uh, that we build on here, and that's again I think uh, a testament of what it is that as Christians we're really hoping for, and that is we can realize individually as a church and as a society that life changes, and as we move and we adapt, what it is we're hoping for and aiming for will shift with it, but underneath it all. There is this sense of, a, of what some scholars would say, this uh, pull, this, this sense of pulling us forward into something better. And many people say, and I would tend to use that same word, is that force is God. And, but it's not like that, it's going to be that. It's more like it's just this movement of, of pulling us into a better part of of humanity as we evolve um and it so. could be bill murray <laughs> if it is we're in trouble <laughs> well scott thank you so much this for, is great for being my a friend part of this. thank you thank you and anybody's listening i mean this is a great church so hang out here um, if you have time well thank you thank you for joining us for today's show you can help us to continue this program by making your donations at beatitudeschurch.org backslash online giving. Beatitudes Radio, empowering people to enrich society.